at this point, you guys have to think, that's a wrap, right? You know, I was really enjoying doing this interview until this <laughs> <laughs> until this memory had to be. I'm sorry. I'm again. sorry. <laughs> Hey everybody, what's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History Season 6. It is commonplace now to find African-American quarterbacks playing all up and down the NFL. Lamar Jackson an MVP, Patrick Mahomes an MVP, on and on and on. But there was a time when that was unheard of, and quite frankly, that was ridiculous. This week's guest went a long way to changing that perspective and proving it doesn't matter who you are. If you can play, you can play. He proceeded to start his career in Canada before embarking on a Hall of Fame career in the NFL. I'm talking about, of course, Warren Moon, this week's guest. Please enjoy the conversation. All right, Warren, let's start here. Do you ever look at the NFL and see Kyler Murray and Russell Wilson and Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson and say to yourself, you're welcome? <laughs> uh, I I'm not that I'm not that uh, generous about it, but I do say that I, I'm very proud of the fact that all these young guys are playing and getting opportunities to play, flourishing in the game, being some of the highest paid players in the game, also being number one overall picks in the game, being highly endorsed in the game. All these things make me, uh, James Harris, Doug Williams, Randall Cunningham, make all of us yeah. very, very proud because we played the game at a high level. And, and I think because of that, it allowed these other guys to get more opportunities. And now you see because they're getting more opportunities, they're showing that they can play the game at a high level and uh, it's paying off. So yeah, I'm, I'm proud about it. I stick my chest out about it, but I don't talk about it very much unless I'm asked. Yeah. Well, I, I just, it seemed like, and Shaq Harris too, by the way, all those years with the Rams, it yeah. just, it just seems, it seemed like a great place to start because the whole point of this show is sort of let people understand what really happened and things that went on that maybe they're not aware of or they forgot. And I just, at this day and age with, with a certain generation of football fans, I don't know if they even know your story. So let's, let's take it back to the beginning. Uh, you were, uh, you went, you went to high school at Alexander Hamilton high school in Los Angeles. And what were your opportunities to play in college as a black quarterback? Well, I was not being recruited by a lot of the schools that actually threw the football. I was being recruited by a lot of schools that ran the wishbone, they ran the veer, uh, some smaller schools that threw the football. But schools like where I wanted to go, the University of Cal at Berkeley or Stanford or the schools that really had pro-style offenses and wanted to throw the ball, those schools weren't recruiting me. I actually committed to go to Arizona State uh, out of high school where Frank Cush was there, and they had kind of yeah. a pro-style offense. And he had put a lot of guys in the NFL. And then they ended up signing the top two high school quarterbacks in the nation that year, a guy by the name of Dennis Sproul, another guy by the name of Bruce Hardy, who ended up being a tight end uh, for the Miami Dolphins for many years. Um, it, when they signed them, they called me and said, we're still going to offer you the scholarship, but we're going to change your position. So I said, uh, no, thank you. Um, I don't want to go to defensive back or wide receiver. I've never played that before. And I want to play quarterback. I feel like I can play it, you know, in, in major college football. So that's why I decided to go to junior college for a year because I decommitted from Arizona State. So that was kind of my recruiting process that, you know, I, I, uh, I played against a guy, Benjamin, in high school who went to Stanford. He's the one that got offered the college, the scholarship to Stanford. I didn't. 
I beat him in high school, played much better than he did in that game, but he's the one that got, you know, the scholarship offer. So I knew, I knew kind of what the deal was back in those days, Trey, I knew it was going to be tough for me to get the opportunities to play where I wanted to play just because of, uh, you know, in some instances, the color of my skin. So um, I was good with it. I just, I just wanted to go wherever I could get an opportunity to play quarterback and continue to keep showing what I could do. I mean, I, I guess the question is, how overt was it? I mean, did they just say to you, look, we're just not going to play a black quarterback, or did they try and hem and haw it? Nobody would ever come out and say that because they couldn't. It's just yeah. like James Lofton. We were both all-city quarterbacks our senior year when we came out of L.A. He went to Stanford, but he got changed to wide receiver. I wasn't willing to change to wide receiver. I wasn't a 4-3 guy like he was. I didn't jump, long jump, 27 feet like he did, which he was a great uh, track athlete as well. So I wasn't going to make that transition to another position where, where he did it. So there were a lot of guys like me that ended up having to change their positions. I just wasn't going to do it because I knew, you know, what my strengths were and what my weaknesses were. So uh, nobody was going to come out and just say, well, no, we're not going to offer you because you're African-American. But they made it very well known just by the guys that they were recruiting and, and what their uh, their overall look was as far as their height. And and uh, uh, they were mostly pocket passers and that type of thing. They, they weren't looking for dual threat type guys back in my day. And that's kind of what I was. How hard was it to stay committed to what you wanted to do, knowing the doors that weren't being opened for you? You know, it was it was difficult to um, to swallow at times, but I also am very confident in my ability, and I'm also very stubborn uh, as a person. And uh, really, all the really great kind of, ones are Warren. All the great <laughs> ones are. Always kind of knew what my what my uh, skill set was compared to the to the my peers around me. I was very good at looking at that, saying, okay. This guy can do this. I, I've always been a, a pretty good judge of, 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 um, of talent of myself and also other guys. So I knew that I could, I could play with all those guys. It was just a matter of getting the chance to do it. So I was just going to go wherever I was going to get that opportunity. So my high school coach uh, ended up going to the junior college as offensive coordinator. So I followed him to West L.A. Junior College just to try and keep improving my, uh, my status and um, got a chance to play with him in the same type of offense, just a little bit more passing to it. And I ended up, you know, having a really great uh, first year in junior college, um, you know, set a lot of set a lot of records and all that and and thought, OK, after this first year, maybe there's some more schools now that, that might be interested in me. Again, that's right. just kind of how it was for me. It was always they were always one of the other guy. Um, and yeah. the other guy just happened to be white. University of Washington was was recruiting my receiver from from my from my junior college team. So of course they saw me on tape because every time he caught a ball, it was from me. The coach at that time for the University of Washington, he's the one that saw me and told and told Coach James about me, Don James, my 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 eventual coach. And then they started recruiting me as a quarterback because they thought I could you know play major college football as a quarterback. So and they were starting a new program. So. Uh, I got recruited by the University of Washington. I got recruited by University of Colorado, um, you know, Oregon, Hawaii, a bunch of schools like that. And I ended up going to the University of Washington mainly because it was in the Pac-8. It was going to be on the West Coast where my family could still watch me play. And they were going to give me a chance to play quarterback, which is what I was looking for. What did it mean to you to finally hear someone like Don James to, to say, okay, doesn't matter to us. Like when, when you've stuck to your guns for that long and had to go sort of, you know, 
transcontinental route to get to where you want to be, basically. Right. What did it mean to hear someone say, yeah, we believe you can do that? I loved it. I loved the fact that they had confidence in me and it just motivated me to, to not let them down, to, to want to you know, work that much harder to show that the confidence that they were putting in me was, was going to be confidence that was well spent by them. So uh, I, I worked my tail off and uh, you know, got myself ready to go up there to play. And uh, it was, this was a pretty bad program at the time, though. We were taking over yeah. a program that didn't have a lot of talent. They were two and nine the, the year before we got there. So it took Coach James a couple of years to get the type of um, recruits in to really uh, run the type of program that he wanted to run. So my first year there was very, very tough because I was a starter. I beat out a fifth-year senior that uh, was, was from the area, a guy by the name of Chris Rowland. And uh, we got off the bad start because our schedule was one of the toughest in college football. We played University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. We played University of Texas, and they had Earl Campbell at that time. We played um, Arizona State, who ended up finishing 12-0 and that year, believe it or not. Um, and they had a great season. So uh, we, we were not winning, and um, the nastiness started coming out as far as the booing and the name-calling and the – all those different things with me as a quarterback. People wanted me out of there. People wanted Coach James gone. I mean, it, it was it was a bad situation for that first part of the year. So uh, I went through that, and that was tough for an 18-year-old from L.A., not knowing very many people up in that part of the country and, and having to deal with people, you know, not just booing you, but but making it nasty, name-calling and things like yeah. that, where my friends and my girlfriend in, in, the, in the stands who ended up being my wife – um, you know, listening to all that different stuff being said. So I knew what was, was up there, even though I couldn't hear it on the field per se, uh, but yeah. I, I could hear the booze. So you, you get there and it's a rocky start at Washington, but you turn it around. You guys yeah. win the Pac-8 in 1977. Yeah. Uh, you go to the Rose Bowl, you take down Michigan, you name the game's most valuable player uh, of that Rose Bowl win. And now you're thinking, okay, cool. Well, I've proven myself here. Right. Clearly things are going to open up for the NFL. And the same shit starts happening again. Same shit. <laughs> a different day, that's all. You know, the same things are being said. Um, didn't come out of a pro-style offense. People thought I was, was was too small. Arm wasn't strong enough, which was probably my strongest attribute. You know, just <laughs> all the different things that were just excuses. Uh, I didn't even have uh, coaches come out and give me individual workouts because that, at that time there was no combine. So Right. You didn't get invited to a combine, but they did come out and do individual workouts if they really were interested in you. So I didn't get any of that. Um, and at that time, the, the CFL was was uh, was calling as far. And then my agent at the time, Lee Steinberg, was doing his due diligence on me with different teams around the NFL. And his feedback was I was either going to maybe get drafted, you know, late in the draft and they had 12 rounds at that time. It was going to be, you know, 10, 11, 12th round or, <laughs> or I would be changed a, a position that I'd have to change my position again. And that was the part that bothered me that the late round draft pick as a quarterback was not a problem. The fact that there were teams that wanted to change my position that bothered me and I didn't want to take that chance. So I weighed the pros and cons of my Canadian Football League offer that they were going to let me play quarterback. They were going to pay me like I was a second round draft pick in the NFL. I was going to a team that really wanted me as opposed to flipping a coin or, or just taking a chance on what was going to happen in the NFL. 
And it was a very tough decision for me, Trey, because that was a dream of mine to, to be drafted and, and play in the NFL and all that. So I gave that up to go to somewhere where I knew that people wanted me. And again, like, like the junior college, again, like the University of Washington. And I went to that, that situation that was more, um, more secure for me as far as what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. Well, it certainly worked out, even though I'm sure as a kid from L.A., you don't dream of saying, yeah, go Eskimos as uh, being a member of the Edmonton Eskimos. <laughs> Nothing. But you get there and you go on the greatest run still in Canadian football history. Uh, in your six seasons, you win five great cups, including the first five years. Now, I, I'm just curious because I wasn't sure about the contract. Were you? Was it a five-year contract, or did you sign multiple contracts? I signed a three-year contract, and then after my second year, they offered me a, another bigger deal. So I signed another three-year deal. So I thought I was going to stay up there, Trey. I enjoyed it that much. Success. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't dealing with any type of racism. You know, I'd get booed on the road like most people do, but it was nothing more than just being booed because you're the visiting team. We're winning championships and uh, I'm getting better as a player. So I signed another deal basically because I had a family at that time. I had three kids by then. I didn't know how, how long I was going to be able to play professional football. So I'm trying to um, maximize on the finances as well as, as be happy in a situation. But then when, after I had so much success up there so early and I'm watching NFL games on TV when our, when our season is over going, you know, I could do what that guy is doing or I could do what this guy is doing or I'm just as good as this guy. But until you actually know that, until you actually do it, you really don't know. I wanted to just see how good a player I could be because they were offering me a ton of money to stay up there uh, the rest of my career. Uh, so I, it wasn't a, a fact that, that I was going to get more money to come to the NFL. It was a little bit more money, but um, when you get up to that type of money, it wasn't that big a difference. So the reason I right. really wanted to come back was to, was to prove to myself that I could play at that level against the best players in the world. Well, again, it sounds like uh, betting on yourself turned out to be a really good idea. So why don't we take our first break here? When we come back with Warren Moon on Half Forgotten History, we'll talk about the transition to the NFL and all the accolades that came after he just stayed true to who he was. We're coming right back with Warren Moon. Stay with us. This week, 68 teams begin their journey to the Final Four at the Caesars Superdome in New Orleans. Number one overall seed Gonzaga has been the favorite to win its first NCAA tournament since the National Championship Futures were released on Caesars Sportsbook last April, opening at plus 550 and currently sitting at plus 350. Only three other schools have odds under plus 1,000 to win it all. Arizona at plus 600, Kentucky at plus 800, and Kansas at plus 900. However, Will all those teams even survive the first weekend? Here's what I mean. Last year, 32 teams were seated in the top eight in their respective regions, combined to go 33 and 20 through the first two rounds, the second worst record through the round of 32 by schools occupying seeds one through eight since the tournament expanded in 1985. In other words, let the madness begin, people. Find more of Trey's trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube. All right, back with Warren Moon here on Half Forgotten History. So take us through the process, because clearly you had success 
in the CFL, and that had to have interest from NFL teams. You have the legendary quarterback agent of all time, Lee Steinberg. So how did you guys start the process of letting people know, hey, we want to come play south of the border? You know, there were teams that up there and scouting me the whole time that I was up there because there's NFL scouts at our games all the time, not only looking at me, but just looking at players in general to see who they could bring back down to the league because guys go back and forth all the time. So I knew there was a lot of interest, but then once teams knew that I was free or going to be free, that's when the real interest started coming. So we we started focusing in on the teams we thought needed quarterback help, and uh, it it ended up being seven different teams that uh, we started – negotiating with uh, it was the Raiders it was the Tampa Bay Buccaneers it was the New Orleans Saints it was the Seattle Seahawks it was the Houston Oilers it was the New York Giants and I think there was one other one in there I can't remember right now but we had really good interest and I, I took a lot of different trips to, to all those different cities to meet the management to, and uh, just really kind of created a buzz, you know, about about me coming down because a lot of people had forgotten who I was uh, coming out of college. That it had been six years. I think the fact that the NFL had um, had went on strike and our games were being televised in their place kind of yeah. brought things back to the forefront because we were on TV a, a couple of times throughout that time. So people kind of knew from there where I was. But um, I boiled it down to. The Seattle Seahawks, because Seattle had been where I was living in the offseason because that was where I went to school, of course. And and um, my, my wife really loved it there. We both went to school there. And then the Houston Oilers, because Hugh Campbell, my Canadian football league coach, had been hired there as their, their head coach. So those were the two teams it came down to. And um, it was a tough decision because my wife wanted me to really stay in Seattle, even though she didn't, she wouldn't tell me that. I kind of wanted to play for Chuck Knox myself because, you know, he was somebody that I followed when he was with the Rams, when Shaq Harris sure. was there. And I knew of his history and, and they had a really good football team. But again, they were coming off of an AFC championship game. So I didn't even know why they wanted another quarterback because Dave Craig was there. So. Houston was giving me a great financial offer. I had a coach there that was familiar with me. So that was kind of the reason why I chose Houston. I knew it was a, a, a bad organization. They were two and 14. Reminded me a lot of the college situation where I came into University of Washington. It was going to be a rebuilding program. And I, and I, I knew that. And uh, that's why I went there with my eyes wide open. I was the highest paid player in the league at that time and uh, going to play in the South. <laughs> and so all those yeah, things I yeah. knew, I knew all the pros, I knew all the cons, but I was willing to do it. Um, you, in a way, you were like the first real NFL free agent, right? Because free agency didn't come, even no. plan B was still years and years away. So you were the first guy that sort of was like, hey, come to me and tell me what you'll do for me. That had to be to feel somewhat empowering after everything you've been through. It, it really was. It was just it was kind of ironic that you go from being a guy that nobody really wanted coming out of college, and now all of a sudden you're the highest paid player in professional football. So um, it just shows that if you stick with your guns and continue to keep working, you know, good things can happen for you, even though it took a while. But it only took a while because I chose for it to be that way. I kept signing contracts to stay. But um, – with that comes a lot of pressure. With that comes a lot of expectations. So I knew that too going in. And at that at this time, I'm a lot more mature. You know, I'm 27 years old, I think, when I came down. And uh, But I also have a family with three kids and another one on the way. So I had to think about that too as far as my decision 
on where I wanted to go financially because at this time I got six years in, I signed a five-year contract. That's 11 years of football. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to play after that. Guys are playing much longer than that now, but at that time, if yeah. you played 10 years, you had a really nice career. So uh, all those things came into consideration for, for the decisions that I made back then. And then obviously Hugh left and in comes Jerry Glanville. And when did you realize that, okay, this situation and the players that we have, this can work. And the numbers just started to pile up. You know, I was, I was uh, really unhappy when coach Campbell got let go after a year and a half. I just didn't think he had enough time to turn around a team that needed that much work done. So I was really disgruntled about that. I was thinking about asking to be traded. Uh, Jerry wasn't somebody that was very popular to me, um, as our head coach, I, I didn't agree with a lot of his philosophies on how he, on how he wanted to be, you know, the center of attention and, and all the different antics that he would do as a head coach. Um, but we did, we were growing and, and, and building a pretty good football team at that time. So I ended up not asking to be traded. We, we kind of changed the offense to tailor it a little bit more towards my strengths where a lot of it was geared towards, you know, when I first got there, Earl Campbell was still there. So a lot of it was geared towards his strengths. Um, it was kind of prehistoric as far as the passing game was concerned, but we started to change that. We went to a little more of a West Coast style of offense and then kind of added on uh, what we call it the red gun. And uh, after that, where, I, where it was a lot of spread out of, the, out of the shotgun that took advantage of my throwing ability. And then I started to, to take off, like you said, and our team started to, to do better offensively and we started to win football games. Yeah, I mean, 4,600 yards two years in a row, 3,600 the year before. And, and suddenly, the guy that nobody wanted to play was going to Pro Bowls and leading teams to victories and getting to the postseason. When, when you found your stride and your comfort zone in the NFL, was it hard to not say, I told you, you should have listened to me? Yeah, it was. It really was. But that's just not me and my personality. I just kind of let my play say those things and let other people say those things for me. But it, inside of me, I knew that, um, again, I always knew that I could play the game at all the different levels that I was going to, whether it was high school, I knew I could play at a high level, whether it was college, I knew I could play at a high level. CFL, it didn't matter. I knew I could play with the guys who were the best players at those levels. It was just a matter of giving me the opportunity to do it. And once I got the opportunity, you know, I showed what I could do. Yeah. And for people that don't know, like the late 80s, early 90s Houston Oilers, they were, you guys were nuts. Like, the, like there was a lot going on with that team. Like a lot of people may not know that that Kevin Gilbride and Buddy Ryan were on the same sidelines and in the middle of the game, Buddy threw a punch at Kevin. I mean, you guys, there was a little, there's a lot of spice on that team for lack of a better. If anybody ever wants to know about what that team was like, look at the 93 yeah. 30 for 30 on ESPN. And you just watched yeah. everything that happened on that football team throughout that whole year. And despite everything that happened, we had a, we had a player commit suicide. We had a player miss yeah. a game because his wife was having a baby and it became this huge national huge scandal, scandal which wow. now no one even talks baby about. Gate. Um, yeah. I got benched during that season. Uh, the first, after the first four games of the season, 
the Buddy Ryan thing was national everywhere. I mean, we we dealt with so much different stuff throughout that year, and still we were twelve and four and won our division and uh, had a bye. So that team was amazing. But I think by the end of the year, we were just mentally drained with everything that we had to deal with. Absolutely nuts. And and of course, as we're taping this, it's the it's the week between the Super Bowl uh, and the conference championship games, and you know we saw one of the most epic. Uh, games in the divisional round between Houston and Kansas City, the great overtime thing with Patrick Mahomes hitting Travis Kelsey after scoring and getting the field goal with 13 seconds left, which caused a lot of heartache for Buffalo. And a lot of people have thought of Buffalo as the heartache franchise with the four straight Super Bowls that they lost in a row. But you know heartache at the expense of Buffalo. A lot of people are going to look at that game, the 42-36 game, and say greatest playoff game ever. There's a whole generation of sports fans, including me, who will always look at the 41-38 game up in Buffalo that you guys lost as the craziest game of all time. So for those that aren't as familiar as they are, and it's still the greatest comeback in NFL history, you guys are cruising in the first half in Buffalo. Frank Reich is playing for an injured uh, Jim Kelly, and his first pass of the second half is a pick six to put you guys up 35 to three. At this point, you guys have to think, that's a wrap, right? You know, I was really enjoying doing this interview until this, <laughs> until this memory had to be- I'm sorry, I'm again. sorry. <laughs> but yes, um, we knew when we played Buffalo and had to go up there that we had to get off to a fast start because we wanted to take the crowd out of the game because their crowd was, was tremendous. We had just beaten Buffalo the week before in Houston. Yeah, to, uh, to get in. The end yeah. of the season again and, and then to play them the next week in the playoffs. So we were confident going in. We knew we could, we could play with them. And uh, Jim had gotten hurt in our game. So uh, we knew that was in our favor. But uh, we got off to the great start. Um, like you said, 28-3 at halftime. I'm walking around the locker room at halftime going, come on, guys, we got 30 more minutes. We, 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 we can't let up, blah, 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 all the different stuff. And guys are looking at me like I had three heads. They're, they're looking at me yeah. like, come on, this, we got this game. It's, it's no problem. And then we go out in the second half, like you said, first pass picked off, pick six. Uh, I forgot who, I think it was Bubba McDowell, and uh, yeah. we're up 35-3. Next thing you know, they get the football, and they go down, and they score. We go in, I think we go four or five plays, give it back to them. They go down and score again because we go into some stupid prevent type of defense that uh, I don't understand why we stopped doing the things that we were doing to, make, to get this big lead. Then they onside kick right there and get the ball yep. back again. I've never seen momentum change in a stadium like that. This place went crazy. And there was a, there was a period over there where we stood on the sideline between that touchdown drive, the, the extra, I mean, the uh, onside kick, and then they got back again, another drive. We were on the sideline for like 25 minutes or something like that, yeah. just freezing our butts off. It was getting colder in the day and we were got out of our rhythm offensively. And, and like I said, the, uh, the momentum changed. And we just couldn't get it back. We just could not get it back for some reason. Um, and they just they just turned up the dial and and started playing better. And we we weren't playing as good. And we lost control of the football game. And we have nobody to to blame but ourselves. Knowing that we wanted to get ahead early offensively, and then knowing what we needed to do on defense by attacking, and we stopped attacking. So we'll we'll move on from that because you eventually you. moved on from Houston. You're Thank welcome. You. <laughs> You're welcome. And, and then it becomes this sort of nomadic existence, right? Minnesota for three years, Seattle for three years, and your final two years in Kansas City. 
And it's interesting to hear you say, you know, you weren't sure how many seasons after 11 you were going to play and you just kept going. Like what was the key to your longevity in, in, in your mind that you were able to function at such a high level? I just love the game. First of all, um, I think the way I took care of myself, I, I really, um, I was a guy that really trained in the off season before training became a big thing with people. You know, most guys would yeah. take off once the season was over and wouldn't really come back until it was time to go to, to mini camps and, yeah. and stuff like that. I started right away. I started, you know, after two weeks and got right back into it. The way I ate, the way I lifted. Um, I always worked on a certain goal in the off season of something I wanted to work on and get better at. So I was never satisfied with my abilities. And then I knew the guys that I was competing against, whether it was Marino or Elway or, or Aikman or Joe Montana, all those guys, I would say those guys are probably out playing golf. Well, I'm going, I'm going to the gym today. You know, I'm, I'm going to go work out and try and get better. So I, I knew the, the competition, if I wanted to be one of the best quarterbacks in the league, I had to stay on top of my game. So all those things kind of kept me going and kept me motivated. I never was satisfied. And I always had that little chip on my shoulder, like you talked about earlier in the show, that I, I wanted to continue to keep showing people I was one of the best players. Um, your final year, you were age 44. And you, before Brett Favre and Tom Brady, you were sort of the standard bearer for a quarterback in his 40s. So I'm just curious for all the things that, and, and again, I understand it is so different now. People need to understand the hits that you guys took in the 80s oh and 90s. <laughs> none of them are legal now, right. okay? And that's a huge factor in Tom and Aaron and even Drew Brees of a smaller stature playing as late as they did. So that has to be factored into this discussion. But as a guy who played under those different rules and played till 44, what do you think of what you saw of Tom and what he did at the age of 44, throwing 44 touchdown passes and throwing for over 5,300 yards? I think it's amazing, but I think it's a tribute to Tom and, and his dedication to the game and, and the things that I talked about I did. He took it to another level as far as the way he trains in the offseason, the way he eats. You know, I don't, I don't eat avocado ice cream. I had ice cream. Yes. I would have regular vanilla or chocolate Thank ice cream. You. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's just his dedication and, and um, uh, his commitment to what he believed in and it, and it paid off for him. I mean, the way he trains with his, his, uh, his quarterback coach in the offseason, his arm is probably stronger than, than when he was 25 years old, uh, just the way his, his mechanics are right now. So all those different things, he put time and effort into it. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's thinking about retiring now is because he's put so much time into it because he's been away from his family so much that he's probably ready now to spend some, some more quality time with them. But he even said um, about a, week, a month ago or so that the game has become more of a skills game. It's, it's not as physical a game as it used to be. So as a quarterback, especially, it's almost like you're out there playing seven on seven um, you do get pass rushes. There's no question about it, but it's nothing like what, what we experienced back in the day. The, the hits that you, you uh, take are nothing like that. The after the, the throw down the field that people don't see, those types of hits. And then for the receivers, it's the same way. They just go through the secondary and nobody's going to intimidate them anymore with any big hits. Right. So uh, it, it's a totally different game for the quarterback and receiver. I think that's why you see these guys throwing the ball the way they are, it's not to say that it's, it's easier, but it's not as difficult. <laughs> it's less, yeah, it's less physically harmful. Let's yeah. be clear about that. Yeah. The hits you would take, 
uh, you know, and the, and the receivers coming across the middle, like you had to have your head on a swivel back then. And, and now, you know, if they get, if they get near you, we'll see the yellow. I'm not saying it's not a better thing for longevity. It's just very different, very, very different. So the hardest thing to do, I think for any athlete and competitor is to know when to say when. Yeah. So how did you know that it was time? I think the fact that, um, I wasn't playing as much when I went to Kansas City. Uh, I went there thinking that because Elvis Gerbach was the uh, the starting quarterback, he had had a lot of injury Elvis issues, and, and they they kind of sold me on the fact that I might be able to beat him out. We well, ended up having his two best years in the NFL, the two years I was uh, in in Kansas City. So you motivated him. They weren't going to replace him if he wasn't playing good. So I understood that, and then. These the um, OTAs had come into play during that time where y- you had to be there starting in I think it was March early I mean late March early April three days a week for OTA practices and I was living in Houston having to travel back and forth to Kansas City and be away from my family and I'd already been away from them for the six months throughout the season because they stayed in Houston and would just come in for games and stuff like that. So I didn't want to do that anymore. I didn't want to be on an airplane and have to go up for uh, practices in the offseason and go over three-step drops and different things that I could do in my sleep. It just wasn't yeah. it wasn't exciting for me anymore. So I just felt like after a year 17 that I would call it a day and um, and and stop playing. But he, physically, I could still play the game. I just wasn't as motivated and, and – uh, and into it as much as I was the previous years when I was playing a lot. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think the thing that people don't appreciate enough about Brady is that at 43 and 40, he still wanted to. Like, he wanted to do all that stuff. And what you just said, I think, is so true. Like, physically, it's awesome that you can do it, but to have the mental desire is almost, like, nuts, right? It really is. And and I used to I used to um, question, I'm like, why does Tom keep playing? Like, I mean, he, after his sixth Super Bowl, I'm like, why does he want to go to another team and start it all over again and, and, and um, you know, take his family to a new city and, and learn a new offense and, and be around new players and have to learn all their strengths and weaknesses and everything that goes along with playing quarterback. I wonder why he wants to keep doing this. What keeps driving him? But I saw what kept driving him and I saw him win another Super Bowl. So hats off yeah. to the guy that uh, he loved the game that much and still loves the game that much. And I think if he wasn't married, he'd probably keep playing. Yeah. It's yeah, like it's age 64. Tom Brady gets his AARP card and wins his 17th Super Bowl. Um, why don't we take our final break? And when we come back, we'll talk about the crowning achievement being in the most exclusive fraternity ever when it comes to football, the hall of fame and what Warren is doing now. So stay with us. We're coming right back on Half Forgotten History. This week, 68 teams begin their journey to the Final Four at the Caesars Superdome in New Orleans. Number one overall seed Gonzaga has been the favorite to win its first NCAA tournament since the National Championship Futures were released on Caesars Sportsbook last April, opening at plus 550 and currently sitting at plus 350. Only three other schools have odds under plus 1,000 to win it all. Arizona at plus 600, Kentucky at plus 800, and Kansas at plus 900. However, will all those teams even survive the first weekend? Here's what I mean. Last year, 32 teams were seated in the top eight in their respective regions, combined to go 33 and 20 through the first two rounds, the second worst record through the round of 32 by schools occupying seeds one through eight since the tournament expanded in 1985. In other words, 
Let the madness begin, people. Find more of Trey's Trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube. All right, back with uh, Warren Moon here on Half Forgotten History. So after the career, the numbers are amazing. You didn't start in the NFL until you were 28 years old, and you threw for almost 50,000 yards. Um, that had to be, a, again, and I told you so moment, but the ultimate had to be the phone call that says, congratulations, you are now a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Yeah, it was. that was um... – that was a day I'll always remember. Um, you know, it was my first year of eligibility. I'm in Detroit where the Super Bowl was being played at that time and also yeah. where they make the announcement at the Super Bowl. I'm preparing for the uh, Seattle Seahawks to play the Pittsburgh Steelers in, this, in the Super Bowl because I was doing their radio broadcast at the time. I had done a quarterback camp for young kids that morning. I was trying to do anything I could to keep my mind off of <laughs> Yeah. whether I was going to get that call or not, you know, and people are calling me all day, family, friends. Have you heard anything? Have you heard anything? Like, would you get off my phone? I'm trying to keep. Why are you calling open. me right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know if something happens. And finally I, I'm in my room and, and I'm with my wife and, and John McClain, who was my presenter calls me on the phone and says, Warren, uh, I think you should ri- drive down to the uh, hotel where they're going to make the announcement because uh, you're in the final eight right now, and I think it might happen. And I'm like, John, but what if it doesn't happen? Uh, I, I'd probably be down there at the, at the uh, hotel, and, and I don't get selected. And I'm, I feel like I got my, my foot in my or my finger in my butt just standing there. So I, yeah. I don't really want to do that. I don't want to come down there. If, if it happens, it happens. He's like, no, I really think you should because I think it's going to happen. So my wife convinced me to go down downtown. So we started driving down, down, uh, down from the uh, team hotel towards downtown and and it's sleeting and it's snowing and it's Detroit. It's February. I mean, yeah, early February. And uh, I get a call on the phone and it's from a, and I thought it was the call, but it wasn't, it was a secretary with the NFL. She says, Warren, I got you those, those uh, tailgate tickets that you were looking for, for your friends and I'll leave them and we'll call for you. I'm like, <laughs> okay, thank you very much. And then she's like, and by the way, congratulations on being selected in the pro football Hall of fame. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, it's going across the ticker tape right now that you just got. Oh, like, no. Nobody's called me or said anything to me. And she's like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, well, I, let me get off the phone. As soon as I hung up, the phone rings again. And it's, yeah. it's the pro football hall of fame telling me that I, that I got selected and dude, the hall got scooped. I just, it was the most emotional moment that I've ever had in my life. And I'm not, I'm not a big emotional guy. Yeah. Uh, I try and always keep cool, calm, and collected. And um, I just started crying like a baby. And my wife had to take the wheel of the car. We had to pull over to the side of the road on the freeway. And and it just seemed like everything that I had gone through, every emotion of people telling me, no, I couldn't. You weren't good enough for this. You weren't good enough for that. I started thinking of James Harris and, and Doug Williams and, and, and Marlon Briscoe and all these guys who didn't get opportunities that were uh, – that were fair during those days, all that came out of me. And, and I, I, I sat there on the side of the road and just boohooed for like 10 minutes. And then finally I got myself back together. We drove down to the hotel and I had to get it together to start talking about, you know, being asked the questions about being selected. But 
yeah, one of the one emotional moments of my uh, of my life and my career, no question about it. Was there any one person that said no or was sort of being very obvious about why you weren't being recruited to play or come somewhere that you thought of right away when you got the news and said, this is for you, dude, like in your face? It was more for my sophomore coach. The sophomore coach of my high school team, would not, he would not play me unless we were like losing by 20 points or something. He put me in and we had this special spread deal where I just throw and throw all to get us back in the game. And the only time I played maybe three or four times my whole uh, sophomore year. So he was a guy that I thought of. His name is Mel Klein. I'll never forget him. And um, that would probably be the only guy that I really thought of initially. But for the most part, I thought of all the other guys I told you about. And then also my mom, I, 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 I much about her because she was the one that made it possible for me to even be in sports because she, she, uh, because I didn't have a dad, you know, my dad died when I was seven. She put seven, me in sports yeah. just so I could be around other boys and to be around other male mentors and, and, and kind of father figure type people. She was the one that made everything happen for me and was my biggest supporter. So she was the one I thought of immediately. Wow. Um, yeah, that's, I always love that because there's always someone, right? Now, not only a Hall of Famer and proved everybody wrong, but now you're venturing into the NFT world. What's, yeah. what's going on there? You are, you are next level now. <laughs> well, I've been uh, fortunate enough to, to be involved with the Costacos brothers who used to do all the famous posters back in the day when I was yeah. playing. And I had a, a poster made by them. Troy Aikman had a poster by them. Uh, you name it, different guys had posters by them. And, and that, that's what young kids used to put up on their walls. Well, now with NFTs being so popular with, with the digital art and that, they've kind of taken those same type of posters and made them into the digital art pieces. And uh, I, I'm one of the ones that they chose to do that. And it, it, they're, they're pretty cool. I've looked at a lot of the different pieces they put together so far on me and some of the other guys. Uh, Willie Mays has already been released and, and it's done very, very well. You know, you've got Pudge Rodriguez in baseball. You've got a lot of different guys who are involved in our in our little uh, group. And uh, I'm proud to be a part of those guys because they're all really good guys. They were all great players when they played the game. And uh, hopefully, you know, some people will be able to enjoy some of these great art pieces made by the Costacos brothers. It just sounds like you're breaking another barrier, setting another trend, <laughs> Warren Moon, just, uh, NFT guy all the way. Well, NFTs are new to me, um, and yeah. but I'm going to go along with it because that, that's the world we live in. Everything's crypto, yeah. everything is is uh digital i mean it's a different world but you got it you got to make the transition with it right well uh, you, you made a bunch of them in your career my friend and it was a it was a delight to watch you and it was great to talk to you about it and i hope a lot of people who maybe didn't know everything about warren moon find a little bit more about uh, what it took for you to get to where you eventually got to and achieved in the, in the game of football. Warren, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it meant a lot to me to talk to you and uh, best of luck going forward, okay? Thanks for having me on, Trey. And, and this show is great of yours because there are backstories about all yeah. these different guys. Nobody walks straight in and becomes the greatest ever or becomes one of the whatever it might be. There's a lot that goes behind it and you're uh, you're making all a lot of these guests reveal what that is. And I'm think, I think your audience really looks forward to listening to that. So thanks for having me on.
So thanks again to Warren Moon for joining us. And that's a wrap, guys, on season six of Half Forgotten History. But we're not going anywhere. Season seven is ready to roll. And we have got so many great guests, including the guy that's going to kick off season seven for us in episode one. Middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears is kind of a big deal. And when he played, this guy was a very big deal. So big, in fact, he's in the Hall of Fame. Season seven kicks off next week with Bears Hall of Fame linebacker Brian Urlacher. We'll see you then.